This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about a geologic layer called the Morrison Formation and the type of environment that existed when it was deposited 150 million years ago. It's a good show recorded for you in Moab, Utah. Stay tuned. The fact that it's been buried for so long and it's kind of re-emerging in a sense as you excavate it, that's really kind of the exciting part is knowing that this thing is finally seeing the sun again <laughs> after such a long time. Today on Science Moab, we're speaking with Dr. John Foster. Dr. Foster is a paleontologist and the former director of the Museum of Moab. His work involves excavating the oldest known dinosaur sauropod skeleton right here in the Moab area. With Dr. Foster, we discuss a geologic layer known as the Morrison Formation, and we explore the Jurassic period, the landscape, plants, and animals that existed 150 million years ago when the Morrison Formation was being deposited. We begin our interview with Dr. Foster explaining more about this geologic layer. It's actually one of the most widely distributed geologic formations in the western U.S. A formation is really just a unit of rock that consists of a consistent collection of rock types. It can be a mix of different rock types, but as long as there's kind of a characteristic pattern to them that's recognizable on a mapping scale. The Morrison was named after the hogback that's outside of Denver over in Morrison, Colorado, within sight of Red Rocks Amphitheater. It's all over the Rocky Mountain region. It's exposed from about the center of New Mexico up almost to Canada, you know, northern Montana, and then from about the middle of Utah out into Oklahoma and South Dakota. And it's actually below the surface. They found it in drill holes all the way out in Kansas. And so it's pretty widely distributed. And generally, it's pretty well known as a Colorado Plateau and Rocky Mountain formation. And what makes it uh, recognizable is that it's usually a, a mixture of red, green, and gray mudstones with some sandstone and limestone mixed in. Around here, it's the kind of thing that we see up around the Klondike Bluffs area, around Arches. You see it some in the Blue Hills area and down south of here, west of Blanding and somewhat east of Blanding and pretty much all over the place, really, I mean... This is actually one of the densest exposures of it, the Colorado Plateau area, just because it's lying near the surface, essentially flat-lying with a lot of canyon country. So when you look at the geologic maps of this area, it's just this big fractal pattern of Morrison all over the place. Where it was named over in Denver, it's essentially a big strip because it's all along the hogback along the front range. Most of the really famous dinosaurs were found in the Morrison Formation starting back in the 1870s, starting in Morrison outside Denver and then down by Canyon City and then up at Coma Bluff in Wyoming. 
things like Brontosaurus and Stegosaurus and Allosaurus and Brachiosaurus, which was actually first found within what is now Grand Junction city limits and was at the time just four miles from downtown. So it's a pretty well-known formation, or at least the dinosaurs from it are well-known, but it had a very different environment and climate. In envisioning what the formation would have looked like, a lot of times it's hard to remember that what we see now is essentially a one-dimensional string of it. It is so extensive and so thin that it's essentially like a piece of paper. Most of the formation is either hidden below the surface or been eroded away from above our heads. If you take a piece of paper and you cut it, the edge of the paper is all you're really seeing. When people envision what the Morrison would have looked like, we need to remember that we're seeing very little of it. At that time, none of the mountains were here. What is now the Rocky Mountain region was essentially flat. All the mountains were off to the west from basically western Utah on out to California. And so the whole region that we see now, the Colorado Plateau, all the canyons, the mountains of the Rockies, all that was basically just a big flat floodplain. So it was a very different world. How long ago are we talking? Roughly 150 million. The Morrison represents a time that's about 7 million years. From about 157, 156 to about 150 or 149. So it's late Jurassic but we're lucky in that the mountains that I mentioned that were off to the west had a lot of volcanoes in them, which means they pumped a lot of ash into the mudstones, the floodplain of the Morrison. And it's because of those ashes that we can get the dates on how old the rock is. You started alluding to the fact that it is hard to think about this landscape because there's so much information missing. But can you bring us to... Moab during the time of the Morrison formation deposition and kind of paint us somewhat of a picture of what was going on, what it may have looked like? In this area, we'd be probably at least 100 miles or so from the mountains. There would have been rivers flowing through this area, mostly east and to some degree to the north. Most of the mountains at the time were west and south of here, and there was actually a shallow continental seaway that was up in Canada. So things were flowing east and north, essentially, through the area, but there were also a lot of wetlands. The environment would have been not quite rainforest or anything like that, but it was certainly a lot wetter than it is today. We have a plant site down by Blanding that we've been working, and there's actually one that was found about 25 years ago down by Bluff that have abundant ginkgos and ferns and conifer wood and a number of different plants that are a lot more wet adapted than what we see now. And then what was the animal life like? There were a lot of animals, obviously a lot of dinosaurs. I think there were probably about 20 to 25 different types of dinosaurs at least. There were, was a diversity of the big long-necked, long-tailed guys like Diplodocus, Apatosaurus, Brontosaurus, which has actually been found near Moab. Stegosaurus, Allosaurus, a thing called Camarasaurus, Brachiosaurus. There were actually ankylosaurs, 
which we didn't know. Ankylosaurs are pretty famous from the Cretaceous, but we didn't know there were any in the Jurassic of North America until about 1990, and now they've been showing up all over the place. Among non-dinosaurs, there's everything from fish and frogs and salamanders, lungfish, turtles, lizards, crocodiles, pterosaurs, and about as many species of small mammals as there are dinosaurs. In total, there is a little over a hundred different species just of vertebrates known from the Morrison Formation. And then, of course, there's snails and clams and crayfish and other invertebrates. They finally found an insect fossil over in Colorado a few years ago. We've had trace fossils that people suspected were from insects, but the first insect body fossil was found over by Canyon City and described, I guess, about seven years ago. So if we were standing right here and it was during the Jurassic, we would be surrounded by an abundance of life. Yes. There's a good chance we'd be standing in mud with a lot of conifers around and a lot of little burrowing, water-dwelling animals and a few dinosaurs probably in the distance. The neat thing about a lot of the animals that we've been finding at the time of dinosaurs recently is that we thought that they were all just little insectivores that scurried around at night. Their ecologies are not as simple, and in fact, Many of them turn out to be quite similar to animals that are around today. Almost every kind of small mammal specialist that we can think of today, there was somebody that was already specializing in that back in the Jurassic. You talked about the Morrison Formation being so expansive, and so would you expect the ecosystems that you would find in one area to be similar to ecosystems in other areas? And also, do we have a feel for how much was changing and how it changed over spatial extents during this time? In terms of through time, it's difficult to say. Although the Morrison represents 7 million years, we don't have the resolution within the formation that we'd like. And part of that is because it's spread out over eight states. And telling if something at the bottom of the formation in Montana is necessarily older than something that's at the top of the formation down in New Mexico, it seems intuitive, but we don't really know that that's the case. Everybody who works in the Morrison is wishing that we had a better way to tell that, and there are a few people who are kind of battling to try to be able to correlate these different localities long distance. What we can tell through the formation is that there are a few dinosaurs in particular that seem to only occur low, but other than that, it's a little bit difficult to say for sure how things are distributed vertically. Hopefully in time we'll have a little bit better handle on that as we learn how to correlate these different localities long distance a little more accurately. Meanwhile, geographically, there are a few taxa that have so far only shown up in places like Montana and northern Wyoming. So there does appear to be a little bit of geographic differentiation that's believed to be somewhat based on latitude and environmental changes between New Mexico and central Montana. The thing that's a little confusing about that, though, is generally the rock types are pretty similar between the two areas. Things do look drier down in New Mexico, 
and a little wetter up in Montana, but it's not a real hard and fast rule because a lot of the plant types and the preservation that we get at the plant localities up in Montana is actually pretty similar to the one we've been working down in, in Blanding. It may not have been as wet down in southern Utah based on the plants, but it still was very similar in the taxa and the way those plants are preserved and the settings that they're in. So we've really got beginnings and hints of things being distributed differently latitudinally within the dinosaurs. If you look at things like crocs and turtles, though, they actually do seem to show a little bit of a pattern, at least in their abundance. They're distributed all over the place. Statistically, it does turn out that crocs and turtles are more abundant along the front range in Colorado and going up in a big arc into Wyoming and Montana than they are down here on the Colorado Plateau. And this kind of lined up with a study that some geologists had done about 10, 14 years ago where they found that environmentally and based on the groundwater distribution, it looks as if there were more wetlands and more wet paleo-environmental settings in general in that area from the Front Range up into Wyoming. So there did seem to be a correlation. But when we look at the big dinosaurs and their distribution geographically and compare their relative abundance in different latitudinal zones within the Morrison Formation, we can't really distinguish much. So the main core of the fauna seems to have been pretty much distributed everywhere fairly evenly and throughout the time of the Morrison Formation with these few little cases of endemic taxa that seem to like particular areas. So you and your team actually discovered the oldest seropod in North America, in San Juan County, is that correct? Well, we started re-excavating it. Okay. Yeah. We, there were two steps to the process. It was originally stumbled upon, essentially, by a military expedition that came through in 1859 that was following the old Spanish trail. They found it, and they collected some of the material, and they brought it back east all the way to the Smithsonian eventually. The report on that came out a little bit later because basically as soon as they got back, uh, late 1859, before they'd had a chance to do much, the Civil War started and they all got busy. It wasn't until 17 years later that the report on it eventually came out, but none of the guys who were involved in that ever made it back out west, certainly not to this area. So nobody had ever returned to the site until the 1970s, Fran and Turpy Barnes spent 12 years researching that expedition. And I think by 1987, they had actually relocated the site after 120-something years. And that was almost miraculous that they were able to find that needle in a haystack. It allowed us to realize that this thing, the sauropod, was from the lowest three meters of the Morrison Formation, way down there. It's the geologically oldest associated sauropod skeleton in North America that we know of. So it's basically the first evidence of these big long neck, long tail guys coming into North America. We know that they'd been here for a little while because we have at least one trackway from Grand Staircase Escalani National Monument. But we don't have any skeletal material. The tracks don't really tell you what the animal is, other than that 
it's a sauropod, but you don't know what kind. And the thing that's important about this one is we have a chance to tell who it's related to and thus where might it have come from elsewhere in the world, what other continent could this lineage have come from, and is it related to any of the later ones like Brontosaurus, Brachiosaurus, and Camarasaurus. So that's what we're trying to figure out, and we started digging on that in 2014. The site had been visited in 1989 just to do a preliminary assessment after they'd relocated it, mainly to confirm that it was the same locality that had been worked for two and a half days in 1859. And they were able to confirm that, so we started working out there in 2014, and we just finished up earlier this year working this season, and we've probably got at least three or four more out there. There's no end to the bone. We've collected about 52 field jackets of bone out of there, and so we have a whole lot more of the animal now. We're curious to see what it turns out to be, but we won't know that until the material is actually out of the rock. It's up in the lab in Salt Lake City being worked on right now. A lot of scientists we talk to on Science Moab approach science with hypotheses. As a paleontologist, are there certain hypotheses that you come with to excavations? And how does the scientific method figure into paleontology? Usually you do, but sometimes your hypothesis is going to come along sometimes by chance and sometimes after you've done a little excavation. In this case, the dystrophius situation, the, the site had already been found. We already knew that it was a sauropod and that it was from the oldest levels of the Morrison Formation, but the best guess everybody had based on the few bones that we had was that it was related to Diplodocus. We came into this essentially with the hypothesis that if we collect more of this thing, we'll be able to either confirm or refute the idea that it's a Diplodocid related to Diplodocus. As we dig, we find more material. We can start to either confirm that or rule it out. And then, of course, the ultimate goal is to figure out exactly who it's most closely related to. When we first started, we couldn't say that yet. It was mainly just, is this thing a diplodocid or not? We've actually been able to find some material that has allowed us to be pretty sure that it's not closely related to Diplodocus, which is actually kind of exciting because that was a little bit unexpected. So now the question is, well, you know, which other group might it be closest to? In other situations, you don't necessarily have that specific of a hypothesis where you know you're going to get something that's going to tell you one thing or another. Sometimes people will just look for areas that have been less explored. You can say that you're looking for something, but it's out of your control whether or not you can actually answer that question. So you can only state your hypothesis to a certain degree, and then the rest is just kind of hard work out in the field and a little bit of luck. So what's that like out in the field? What does it feel like to find a fossil? It's really interesting that you do get a little bit blasé about the normal ones, and sometimes you actually do have to stop and remind yourself that this thing has not seen the light of the sun in 150 million years, and you just exposed it. 
you forget that sometimes. Of course, every once in a while you find something really rare that shocks even you, and you get really excited about that. Regardless of whether it's a rare thing that you get excited about or if it's just uncovering more of the same thing you've been working on all day, the fact that it's been buried for so long and is re-emerging in a sense as you excavate it, that's really kind of the exciting part, is knowing that this thing is finally seeing the sun again (laughs) after such a long time. What value do you find in the study of paleontology? I think the biggest thing is understanding the way past ecosystems functioned. No matter how long we've studied modern things, and as jealous as we get of modern biologists being able to actually see these things interacting and and be able to measure and actually know things about them, we're still, even a couple hundred years into biology, we're still just seeing a snapshot of what happens. And so I think the value is really in the long-term perspective on ecosystems and how they react to change and how the animals and plants really can influence the physical environment as well, providing that long-term input on biology in general is probably the most important part of it. What first got you interested in paleontology? When I was a kid, I had dinosaur books, but I was never particularly obsessed with it any more than I was other things. I was also really obsessed with sharks. I was also very into space. So it was never a singular obsession that I never outgrew. It was just kind of a general science interest. It wasn't until I got to college that I actually got drawn into it, and that was a result of going to college intending to be a marine biologist My first year in college, I didn't want to dive right into my major. Physical geology was recommended for marine biology just as a recommendation, not a requirement. So I took it, and somehow that was so revealing to me of everything that's going on in the earth around you that I ended up switching majors completely and going into geology, still though not really thinking of paleo, that wasn't until I'd taken some more geology classes and we ended up out in the Mojave Desert doing field mapping. And the indication that I wanted to do paleontology was when my field mapping professor would have to come around, kind of kick me and get me back to what I was supposed to be doing because every time we found a coral or some trilobites or something like that, I'd be digging for him. That was my indication that of all the aspects of geology, I liked the biological end of it the most. In a way, I kind of combined the biology and geology there with uh, going into paleo. And what do you enjoy about being a scientist? Mostly, I think, being able to go outside for work occasionally. The other aspect of it, I think, is that whatever curiosity I remember having as a kid, I've been able to keep up. That same tendency of remaining curious about everything around you is a real enjoyment. It's nice to be able to do that as part of a job. Well, John, thank you so much for this interview. It's been very cool yeah, to hear no about problem. your work. 
To listen to this interview with John Foster again or any of our past shows, visit kzmu.org, iTunes, or Stitcher. Theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is provided by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies. And the show is produced by Christina Young, Peggy Hodgkins, and KZMU.